Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. In this episode, we will begin our new series on the Apostles' Creed. Strangely, when we approach the New Testament, we instinctively think that the old is good, but when it comes to the creeds and confessions, we tend to assume that old is bad. How can such an old creed speak to our current life? Is it still relevant? Stay tuned for the first in our series where we talk about faith and belief as expressed by the Apostles' Creed. We believe that you will find this creed not only relevant, but also liberating. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I am Pastor Kirk Sexton from Mountain View Presbyterian Church, and with me is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Kirk, it is good to be with you again today in our Full Dig Podcast, and now in our new and improved recording studios. Right. I think our listeners might miss the motorcycles, but hopefully they'll hear less of that. That's right. More angelic ramblings by you and me, I suppose. <laughs> Well, we're starting a new series, and we're going to be doing the podcast through the Apostles' Creed series. And Pastor Drew got us started on Sunday, and Pastor Steve was down on our south campus, and and Clint was in the Midtown campus. And all preaching on the same theme Yes, as we began the Apostles' Creed. That was kind of cool. And it was fun on Thursday. We all met at 8 a.m. in the morning, and we went over some some ideas, some thoughts, and it was fun to share in that way. Well, you had fun. I was preparing for painters at 8 o'clock in the morning, so uh, you had more fun than I did at that point. Well, Bruce, um, I think we'll have a similar format for our program today as we had in our previous. We'll have... Looking com- at the text, I suppose, first. Well, and- we'll look at the text. We will uh, look at other creeds that we might in our in our heritage that might speak to this creed that's right makes sense and we will uh we'll also hear from c.s lewis yes must hear from c.s lewis and will there be a quote from our reform heritage i have one for us oh you are good kirk yeah and a little bit of archaeology oh good as always oh good well it wouldn't be a full dig podcast without some archaeology Exactly. So let's talk about creeds. Now, you know, I grew up uh, in the Assemblies of God Church, which was not a liturgical church. So we never had the Apostles' Creed or any creed during worships. So I didn't grow up uh, interacting with the creeds. What about you, Kirk? What was your experience? I grew up Catholic, and so we had the Nicene Creed. Hmm. And what was interesting to me is when I began to lead worship how easy it was for me to, you know, we would be sharing the the Apostles' Creed in worship most of the time, but how easy it was for me to fall back into the Nicene Creed because they were so close. Uh, they are very close. They began both in the same time in the early centuries of the Christian church. Uh, we think as a response to people being baptized and before baptism being prepared for um to be Christians and to be in a Christian community. So uh, we have a description of this from about 180 AD. And the people who have been studying about Christianity for a year or more, they come and they're asked three questions. Uh, One question about God the Father, one question about God the Son, one question about God the Holy Spirit. And out of that kind of interaction, 
during baptisms of early Christians. That's how both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed began. Uh, sometimes they'll use the term the Old Roman Creed, mm. and they mean uh, that creed from the second century that was a response to those three questions, but basically going over the same material we find in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Nicene Creed, a very formal document that came out of an ecumenical council um, in the early third century, uh, and present for that was the Emperor Constantine. He once said, let's, let's get this in, in the books. Mm-hmm. You know, what do we all believe? And that'll be the official reg- religion of the Roman Empire. So practical thing for that. The very first ecumenical creed is in the Bible, in the book of Acts, in chapter 15. So anytime you get all the Christians from different areas together, that's a, a ecumenical council. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had the Nicene Creed basically taking firm shape in the third century. And as Pastor Drew mentioned, uh, the Apostles' Creed in final form doesn't happen until much later. He put it in the uh, time of Charlemagne, which is uh, the end of the eighth century, beginning of the ninth century. Other scholars put maybe uh, 150 years or so before that, but you know, around that time. So mm-hmm. a long process of getting into the form we have today. Well, that link that you sent me shared that many of the articles in the the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed were said much earlier than when they became a formal creed. Right, and we have examples of um, early Christian creeds even in the New Testament, and I think Pastor Drew did a good job of explaining that. He pointed to the great Christological passage in Colossians chapter 1, a, a Christological passage, as you might expect, mm-hmm. has to do with Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. It has to do with Christ, so right. Christological. So we have one of those from uh, the book of Colossians, another one from the book of Philippians uh, that he went into uh, that are helpful to look at, mm-hmm. or even the very simple creed, Jesus is Lord, that's a creed. Uh, the word creed in English, and again, uh, we heard this in the sermon, comes from Latin credo, which means I believe. And the Apostle Creed begins with that phrase, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I thought it was interesting that the the Nicene Creed, it says we believe. Yeah, isn't that great? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and you think about it uh, as... It moves from a baptismal creed where everybody has to say, yes, I believe, to something we confess together on a regular basis, weekly. Mm-hmm. It made sense to change from I believe to we believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Kirk, you mentioned the phrase, uh, the articles in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And let's just explain for our listeners what we mean by that. We mean different phrases. Mm-hmm. So the Apostles' Creed would have traditionally 12 articles in it that are broken down in nice chunks about uh, different topics. And we're taking 11 weeks to go through Apostles' Creed, so all of a sudden you have the mathematician saying, well, why are you taking 11 weeks if there are 12 articles? Shouldn't you take 12 weeks? Well, we'll combine uh, them in, in, in slightly different ways. And even this first sermon in the series did not take the full um, range of that first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. Uh, Pastor Drew stopped with, I believe in God. 
uh, just to get us going. But mm-hmm. but that's okay. We'll we'll do catch up later on. Right. So when we're thinking about creeds in general, how does that differ from Bible? Great question. And I think that it, uh, the basic answer is that, well, the Bible has verses from the Bible and creeds are summaries of teaching we find in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're great for a uh, quick understanding or an overview of what many, many verses in the Bible, many, many chapters lead us to believe. That's what a creed is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Pastor Drew mentioned basic Bible texts you want people to know as they become Christians, and we do that with our confirmands, and we do that in other ways, but think of the Lord's Prayer, you think of the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed, and those would be pretty significant. Most catechisms that have been written in the Western part of Christianity, at least, focused on those three primary texts, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. You mentioned a few others that are good to know. John 3.16, always good to know. Yes. A few other things, some of the Psalms, Psalm 23. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think one of the functions of the creed is to help us identify um, as Christians and believers in the faith. I love that we stand for the creed because it's not just me then. It's not just I, but it is I I think Drew said that the I is the way of making us accountable for the faith, but the uh, the we is the when we stand together. You know, I look around and you know maybe I don't believe everything in there at this moment, but I'm standing with all these other people that are confessing that they do. Right. You know, so uh, that's good um, that we uh, we you mentioned the idea that we educate. Um, young people and new people to the faith by that. And it continues to educate and inform us. Absolutely. Um, And then it unifies us because we're saying this with Christians all over the world and of different denominations and faith expressions. Right. Uh, Christians around the world, we, we have diversity of languages and cultures. Some people like curry. Some people don't like curry. Mm-hmm. Some of us root for the Arizona Diamondbacks. You must have pity on us. But uh, <laughs> And some root for other uh, teams or different uh, political affiliations, different uh, uh, race, races, ethnicities, languages. Sure. Yeah. It's neat that to think about that when we're standing and and saying that, that we're joining together with voices from the past and 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 in the future and and all over the world and all these different languages and voices. It's it's really neat to think about that. It is, and and uh, it's true. It makes sense. We are united in that way in a common belief. Creeds also are a bit of a, if I use a technical term, polemic. Um, because when we say what we believe, we're also kind of saying what we don't believe. That's right. And a lot of the early creeds came out of that um, interaction with a diversity of beliefs that were judged by the early church to be outside of the Christian faith. And again, Pastor Drew mentioned some of those movements Mm -hmm. and some of the lines in the Apostles' Creed and in the Nicene Creed are definitely responses to a false teaching going on back right. in those early Christian right. centuries. 
And they do the creed when we say it together in church. It also has sort of a dox, doxology, doxological kind of feel to it. We're getting really fancy with our words today, aren't we? Doxological, Christological. I know. Wow. But it's about praise. Praise, right? Right. Uh, Praise to God. And and I think the Lord um, loves us to give voice to what we believe. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think one of the other things is it it's edifying. Um, it helps uh, beyond the instruction uh, that we talked about earlier. Uh, it also enlightens us, and uh, maybe that happens when we're standing there saying the creed and we start to marvel at God's creation or the majesty of God or the power that you know. He has to speak the world and exist. I mean, you can do that on all these different articles or, or phrases within the creed. And you really then, can. And, and of course, when we begin to do that, we're talking about a personal God. Uh, you know, a lot of people will believe in God in various ways and have different ideas about that. But when we speak about uh, our belief in God, we are talking about God who... Uh, has become real to us mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ, the, the God uh, of um, and maker of all things, the God who is real and wants to have a relationship with us. Well, the, the creeds. Yeah. Well, the creeds, you know, we could probably go on and on about its functions. And, but there, there I, I, I guess I wanted to say that it's important. Yes. Uh, you know, what we say about Jesus, what we say about God, it's very important. And that's why we're taking this time uh, in worship, in the sermons uh, coming up, and also on our podcast to get into that a little bit. So we're going to jump ahead a little bit in the sermon series. I want to talk uh, a bit about what what do we mean by saying we believe in God as a father? And I think, Kirk, there's at least three different ways that term is used in Scripture, talking about God as a father. First, uh, there are verses that talk about God as the father of all people. We have verses in Ephesians uh, 3, verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. That's a reference to God the father of all people. Or later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, a very broad way to talk about the fatherhood of God. Mm-hmm. Then you have verses that specifically talk about God being the father of his people. And this begins in the Old Testament. Uh, Isaiah, end of Isaiah, uh, verse 40, or 64, verse 8. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hands. That's specifically talking about God working with his people, molding his people. Or in Malachi, chapter 2, verse 10. Do we not have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? So he starts that, you think he's talking about God as the father of all people, but then he goes into the covenant that he had with uh, his people, uh, the people of Israel and Judah at that point. 
And of course, in the New Testament, uh, we see that again and again. Oh, another verse from the Old Testament from Psalms 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So again, God the Father of his people. I like how you use the word fatherhood, because I think a lot of people have struggles with, and we just kind of naturally assume that we're talking about a father relationship that we know intimately that may have not been helpful or hurtful. And you know what I mean? Right. We serve God as a good father. Right. And uh, not, not all earthly fathers are good. And of course, all earthly fathers are human and make mistakes. But God is a good father, and a perfect father. I think Clint said that in our, in our meeting or on Thursday that God is the pattern of all true fatherhood. And so this fatherhood picture is one that defines and not the other way around. So we can look to God the Father and his goodness defining all fatherhood. Yes, the first couple of days I was a father, the first couple of days after our first child was born, I remember trying to turn that over my mind. What what does this mean? I pray to our Heavenly Father, and now I'm a father. Right. And what, what does God want me to know about that as I try to be a good father? In those sleepless nights, these are the things you pondered. Oh, you had to bring up the sleepless nights. <laughs> there, there were many of them, yes. <laughs> okay, uh, the third way that God is a father uh, that we find in Scripture is God as the father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, of course, you think of John 3.16. What's John 3.16, Kirk? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. I I just said that for a confirmation class, because the confirmation class had to memorize John 3.16. And we also see that in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the God who loves us, God the Father who loves us, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is to be praised. Uh, So great, great thing to think about. And for us who are parents, Great things to ponder. How can our role as a father or mother, as a parent, model the, the good uh, goodness of God, our Heavenly Father? So our church recently changed the language of our creed. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit, because there might be some people that are questioning why we did that. Exactly. So we have in ECO a group of people that have volunteered to be our theology task force for the denomination. They look through what English translations we should use for the ancient creeds, and they occasionally come up with uh, theological resources for us. They did one on baptism. Uh, They've done one on women in ministry. They're about to do one on the Sabbath. I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, So that's a group of people they looked at and said, well, we've got different ways the Apostles' Creed has been said in English and different uh, 
churches here in our denomination. Let's get one that's going to help lead us forward. And so that's why the Apostles' Creed, as we say it now, has the phrase, the living and the dead, instead of the quick and the dead. That was the Old English. Mm-hmm. Um, we still use the word, believing in the Holy Catholic Church with a little c, Catholic in that sense being universal. Mm-hmm. We could have said uh, one universal church, but people would think we're Moonies or something. <laughs> yeah, so, so Catholic seemed like a safer word there. So a few things like that. That was just uh, to update the language a yeah, bit. Yeah, the other one was sits instead of sitteth. Sitteth, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Updating the language. And uh, from thence he shall come. Yes. To, to there he shall come. So we don't use thence very often. Mm-hmm. We don't use sitteth very often. So, yeah. Right. Made sense to update that. All right. Well, what do we do with the legend of the Apostles' Creed? Drew well, mentioned that a little bit. Yes. Did yes. you know there are two different versions of the legend? Of I the did Apostles? not know that. So depending on uh, which uh, well, church. I don't think he called it a legend. I think he called it the myth. The myth. <laughs> yeah, it, it's something like uh, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree as a kid. Right. You know, we all heard the story. I shall not tell a lie. I did it with my little hatchet, right? Not true. You know, a bit of early American propaganda. But it conveyed a good lesson that it's good to tell the truth, you know, even if you have to face the consequences. So there was a value in the, the myth, the legend of the Apostles' Creed being directly connected to the Apostles because it conveys the message that uh, this faith that we talk about, that we confess together when we do this creed, is a faith, the same faith that the Apostles believed in. So here are the two versions of that uh, legend, that story. That's, again, something like George Washington chopping down the cherry tree as a kid. Mm-hmm. So in one legend, the apostles were trying to figure out, hey, we're, we are coming together and we need some basic statement of what Christians believe. So they all went away and, they, and uh, wrote down something, came back together, and the apostle Peter had the first article and then you go down, uh, Apostle Andrew had the second and, and so on. And they put it all together and said, yep, that's it. And uh, so there was a sense of God guided them in putting that together. The other way the legend is told in certain uh, Middle Eastern countries and older Middle Eastern churches is that uh, had the same idea. The apostles went to different rooms. They all wrote and came back and all 12 of them had exactly the same words. Mm. So that, you know, two different ways to basically say the same thing. What the faith that we confess when we recite the Apostles' Creed is the same faith that the Apostles had. Uh, but they're, they're stories. They, they convey a lesson and they're fanciful, but they're worth noting. And so we're going to play off that a little bit by saying at each, as we go through the different articles of the Apostles' Creed, let's also talk about what we know about the apostles. Now, because we have 11 weeks to go for the sermon series and 12 articles and 12 apostles, we're, we're going to have to double up on apostles eventually. Um, but we'll start with uh, probably the best-known apostle, and that's the apostle Peter. What do you remember about the apostle Peter? Peter's one of my favorites. He's the rock. He's the... Yes. Uh, um, he's the one that sort of opens mouth, inserts foot. 
on occasion. Yes. Um, thinks before he speaks. Or speaks he, before he thinks, yes. You know, but he made that great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a few sentences later, he was told to get behind get behind me, Satan. Yeah, right? when, when he's good, he's very good. And when he is bad, he's horrid, right? Yes. <laughs> Just like the nursery rhyme. Right. Yeah. And we've got a couple of books uh, that Peter wrote in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, letters of his, and uh, traditionally says that uh, the writer of the Gospel of Mark was a disciple of Peter, follower of Peter. So a lot of Peter's influence on the Gospel of mm-hmm. Mark. So uh, we know a lot about Peter, and we could go on and on. We'll, we'll probably stop there. Uh, and next week, as a teaser. We'll talk about one of the least known of the 12 apostles, and that's Matthias. Mm. Matthias, who takes over from um, Judas after uh, Judas uh, hung himself, betrayed Christ and hung himself. They need to complete the roster of 12 again. Mm. So we'll talk about Matthias next week. Okay, good. Now we have some expressions of uh, in our other eco-confessional statements that talk about God's nature a little bit. Um, should we talk about that or get into that a little bit? Kirk, what do you think? I think that'd be a good idea. So Drew mentioned the Trinity, and he said he wasn't going to get into that, but let's get into the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity a little bit from our confessional standards. Uh, this is uh, from the eco-essential tenets, and this is what it says about the Trinity. The triune nature of God is the first great mystery of the Christian faith. With Christians everywhere, we worship not only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is both one essence and three persons. God is infinite, eternal, immutable, impassable, and ineffable. He cannot be divided against himself, nor is he becoming more than he has been, since there is no potential or becoming in him. He is the source of all goodness, all truth, and all beauty, of all love and all life, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. There are three persons, or the three persons are consubstantial with one another, being both co-eternal and co-equal such that there are not three gods, nor are there three parts of God, but rather three persons within the one Godhead. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father, and the Spirit proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. All three persons are worthy of worship and praise. They're very careful. Very precise language, right? Very precise, yes, Mm. because it's so easy to fall into heretical views when we start trying to describe these things, especially the Trinity. Yes, it's like trying to define love. Um, You want to be precise, and you can get off track pretty easily. I remember from my history class, we looked at the the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. I think we looked at maybe several creeds in that class. But I remember the, the diagram being very helpful to me being a visual learner, where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a triangle, and then in between is the is not. Yes. You know, no est, I think it says. Right. In the Latin. 
that was really helpful to me to think about visually that they're they're distinct and and uh, ha- as they said here they're consubstantial with one another. That's very good. It's well written. It is well written. Well, we have some other eco-confessional standards, and uh, the Heidelberg Catechism is one we've referenced in our previous podcasts. And so question number 26 says, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And the answer is that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ created heaven and earth with all that is in them out of nothing. He also upholds and governs his creation by his eternal counsel and providence. He is my God and my Father for the sake of Christ his Son. I trust in him so completely that I have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. Moreover, whatever evil he sends upon me in this troubled life, he will turn to my good He is able to do this because he is Almighty God. He is determined to do this because he is a faithful father. And likewise, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, in a question not about the Apostles' Creed, but about the preface to the Lord's Prayer, uh, it asks in question 189, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the answer is, preface of the Lord's Prayer, contained in these words, Our Father in Heaven, teaches us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of His fatherly goodness and our interest therein, with reverence and all other childlike dispositions, heavenly affections, and due apprehensions of His sovereign power, majesty, His gracious condescension, also to pray with and for others. So in both the Heidelberg Catechism and in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it's not only precise language, but talking about the personal nature of God. God is not uh, an idea. Mm-hmm. God is a real uh, being. And we approach God in uh, all of God's majesty and gloriousness and all of God's compassionate care as our Heavenly Father. I like that uh in question 26, where it says that he created heaven and earth with all that is in them out of nothing. And I'm always reminded by this maxim that says, out of nothing, nothing comes. Yes. You know. Um, Sounds like something you would say to your teenage son or daughter as they're procrastinating and not doing their homework, right? <laughs> That's good. I've never used that in that context, but that is good. Hey, Kirk, you were talking a little bit about that uh, diagram of the Trinity and trying to visualize God. So that's a nice lead-in to the archaeology part of our podcast today. And I want to talk about the Duro Andropolis Synagogue in eastern Syria. Have you ever heard of that, the Duro Andropolis Synagogue? Never have. Uh, It's famous uh, for art history and uh, one of the first buildings that have um, paintings on the walls of this building that go through different biblical stories. Uh, So you have uh, Moses receiving the Ten Commandments, the near sacrifice of Isaac, and and so on. 
with explanations of this uh, written Hebrew. So several times as they're going through these biblical stories, they will have this floating hand that's in part of the painting. Like when uh, Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, there's this floating hand coming down. And you realize this is supposed to be a representation in art of God. And God is personal. How do you represent God who is invisible? Well, you have this kind of floating hand, and that's that's meant to be the hand of God. Mm. So I've never been out to see that famous uh, synagogue, but I've seen some synagogues within Israel from the uh, what we call the archaeologically the Byzantine period. And, and sure enough, you have these uh, floating hands of God in these biblical stories, which is amazing. But they're struggling with how do you do that? How do you how do you in a piece of art talk about who God is? Mm. Uh, and that, that floating hand of God becomes the, the way they do this, the manus dei, the hand of God. That's good. Well, should we move on to the C.S. Lewis quote of the day? We certainly can, and I've got a quote from an essay he wrote called The Obstinacy of Belief. Uh, have you ever been obstinate in your life, Kirk? Yes. I have too, so The Obstinacy of Belief in that essay C.S. Lewis wrote, to believe that God, at least this God, exists is to believe that you as a person now stand in the presence of God as a person. What would a moment before have been various variations in opinion now become variations in your personal attitude to a person. You are no longer faced with an argument which demands your assent, but with a person who demands your confidence. And again, it's that understanding that when we say, I believe in God, we mean a personal God, a real God, not just an idea about God. Someone who's real and wants a relationship with us. Interesting. And do we have a quotation from our reform heritage, Kirk? We do. Um, And what kind of moved me uh, to bring this one up is um, we were talking in our meeting about how saying the creed or the Lord's Prayer or any of the things we do in our liturgical practice can become rote. Right. You know, we say it, um, but are we really internalizing that? Are we? Do we really believe it with all our hearts and things like that? So, um, uh, yeah, I've had the experience sometimes when I am uh, in the habit of praying before a meal. And sometimes if I'm not careful, I will pray. And then I catch myself, did I just pray? Which means I probably went through the words but wasn't paying attention. And that's dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> Very dangerous. Yeah. So um, R.C. Sproul has a book called Renewing Your Mind. And it is, it's, he, it's the subtitle is Basic Christian Beliefs You Need to Know. And it's really an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Ah, and right. so this comes from the introduction of that book. He says, Any creed can be affirmed by the lips without being embraced by the heart. But once a creed is embraced by the heart, the mind is captured by it. Mm. And I thought, you know, Drew brought up the uh, text from uh, Romans. It was Romans 10, 9, says, If you confess 
with your lips or your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I kind of thought that that just resonated with me about the ideas that we can say these things with our lips, which is fine. You know, to maybe we don't believe it, but we, we get up and we say it and we say it again, and we continue to say it. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and, and and eventually, I think it's embraced by the heart. I think that's why it's so important that we teach our children these creeds. And, you know, I mean, there's probably a lot of, I don't know if there's a lot of opposition to it, but, I mean, we might say, well, why do I need this old creed, you know, from way back when, you know? Um so, Kirk, I have to tell you the story. When I first encountered the Apostles' Creed, right? So, did not grow up in a liturgical church, and I got to seminary or got to college, and was thinking about going into full-time ministry. So, I took a church history course, and there in the church history course, when I was 20 years old, was my first encounter with the Apostles' Creed. Mm. Never seen it before. And I was just amazed. I said, boy, this is great. And immediately I thought, I've got to memorize this. This is really good. And then uh, several months later, I uh, left for Israel to study in Jerusalem. And there is the Presbyterian Church in Jerusalem run by the uh, Scots Presbyterians, uh, the Church of Scotland. And there in worship, they said the Apostles' Creed. And I thought to myself, hey, I know this. I memorize this. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Yeah. I have a different story. I was at Valley Presbyterian Church, and I met a new believer and I invited her to come and worship with us at Valley. Well, got to the part of the service where we stood and we said the Apostles' Creed, and I could tell by her face that she was just sort of shocked by this. Hmm. And then um, after worship, she goes, what was that? She'd never heard it before. Yeah, right. And she probably went to... Bible churches where they didn't say the creed. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the part that says, and we can talk about, we will talk about this later, the Catholic, I think she was very concerned that she was in a Catholic church because oh, you know, right. Right? she didn't understand the little c, mm-hmm. um, that it was the church universal that we were talking about. So she was really, it was a different sort of story for her it was like what is that so right interesting well we'll explore more about the apostles creed in the coming weeks um, and we'll look forward to talking about that with you kirk i will look forward to it too should we pray yeah would you pray for us kirk please sure Uh, lord uh, we thank you for our time together and uh We pray that uh, we would be people that do confess with our our lips and our mouth that you are Lord and that we uh, would share that faith that we have been given and the faith that's been transferred to us um, for so many ages uh, from really the apostles. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to as reminded us on Sunday that we would set our minds on Christ and set our hearts and minds on Christ as we go forward. And and we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we continue in this study of the Apostles' Creed. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.